for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how sweet it is that by your condescension, by your humiliation, by your stepping down and taking upon yourself flesh and blood and suffering and bleeding and dying for us, that you have taken away the power of death. You have given us help. You have put away our sins. By your work, you have declared us right. You have interceded for us in such a marvelous way. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for reconciling us. and for bringing us to God. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. We're covering the last two verses. From hostile vices to hospitable virtues. As we conclude chapter 4, we, are, we come to the, this end, the end of this section where Paul has been discussing not only the importance of repentance, but practically what repentance looks like in these very key areas 
of the church. These are very key areas whereby we, if we walk in repentance, we build unity, we build fellowship, we contribute to the coming together and the building up together of the, of the church body and love. If we neglect repentance, we can undermine all that. And we can be found to be hindering and working against the Lord himself. Now, Paul has already touched on anger. I asked myself why, as I began studying for, for this uh, uh, section of text, I wonder, I asked myself, why did Paul, why is he circling back around to anger again? I mean, some of the words are different. Some, you know, some of the nuance of this discussion on anger is different, but he doesn't do that with any of these other topics. Why is he circling back and talking about anger? Well, if nobody else in this room could stand to benefit from another sermon on how to respond to sinful anger and the utter necessity that it is that we must put away our sinful anger. If nobody else in this room can benefit from that, I can. And so I am glad that Paul has circled around and has laid before us the fact that God must truly be concerned about how his people deal with their anger and their bitterness. So there are three, three items, three things that Paul has for us today. In verse 31, he will tell us to turn from our anger. Turn from our anger. And then he'll tell us what to turn to. He'll, he'll tell us in verse 32, uh, the first half, to turn towards God's kindness. And then lastly, he will give us uh, as, an in, as an incentive or for motivation, he will give us the pattern to remember as we try to put the first two into effect. Turn from your anger, turn towards God's kindness, and then the pattern to remember. That's, let's read verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So first, we see Paul tell us, command us to turn from our anger. And he lists, as, as, as several of the writers of scripture do from time to time, there is a list of vices. Just as in other places there are a list of virtues. Here is a list of vices. Six kinds of anger-related vices that you and I, as, as the Lord's people, vices that we need to be committed to daily turning from. Now these qualities have a lot of overlap. They are interrelated. <clears throat> I don't think Paul has just, you know, jumbled up the bag and is pulling out words at random. These are, these are qualities, these are attributes that exist in the same spectrum or, or in the same family of sin. 
And what he does is he, he begins with sinful attitudes on the inside. Attitudes that, as they take root, and as they, as they grow, and they bear fruit, then produce sinful actions on the outside. He starts with the heart, and he, he builds up and ends with the external. So let's start with, with the inside. With the attitudes. The attitude, namely, of bitterness. Paul says to lay aside, or to put aside, all bitterness. Bitterness is a sour spirit. It is marked by sour speech. It is marked by complaining. One of, one of my, and one thing you'll, you'll come to find out if you haven't yet is I have certain favorite words in the Hebrew and the Greek. My, you're not, you're not only going to hear my favorite Greek word today, you're going to hear my second favorite Greek word to murmur or complain. Gungasmu. Say, say it with me now. Gungasmu. Very good. <laughs> Bitterness is marked by a gungasmooing attitude. It is marked by negativity. It is marked, marked by resentment, cynicism, a critical perspective on others, on one's circumstances, and on life itself. Bitterness is always able to find even the smallest dark cloud in a storehouse of silver lining. Don MacArthur defines bitterness as a smoldering resentment, a brooding, grudge-filled attitude, a spirit of irritability that keeps someone in perpetual animosity and makes him sour and venomous. Well, that's a good description. What does bitterness do? Bitterness is quick to remember the wrong that has been committed. Bitterness is quick to, to overlook or just outright forget any good that accompanied the wrong. Bitterness clings on to those wrongs and it refuses to let go. Bitterness rehearses those wrongs and keeps those wrongs fresh in the mind right up front and center, and like tinted shades, bitterness affects absolutely everything you see and absolutely every way that you look at other people and circumstances so that the embers of resentment stay hot in your mind. Bitterness is like a rock in your shoe that you just can't get out and just keeps you irritated and agitated all the live long day. Bitterness makes the wrongs of the past define who you are today. Bitterness allows the wrongs of the past to define what you are about right now. Bitterness refuses reconciliation. It denies forgiveness. And it wants to perpetuate hostility. Bitterness wants to lay a foundation of resentment 
so that you can feel justified in seeking vengeance. Paul says that attitude, all of that, that is entirely inconsistent with the Christian walk, and therefore it is to be put aside. All of it. And that's not a suggestion. I mean, this, this is an imperative. Paul is saying, do this. Don't, don't think, don't, don't put it on your to-do list. Don't, don't say that you'll get around to it eventually or when it's convenient. Do this now. And behind Paul's authority is the authority of Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus Christ the Lord, the risen Lord, saying, this is how my people need to be. Because it is how I am. It is Christ himself commanding us to lay aside all bitterness. And we will give an account should we refuse him. Let all bitterness be put away from you. All of it. And you have to appreciate how extensive, how far-reaching that is. It means we can't put away bitterness for some people, for the people that we like, for the people who, it, who make it easy to be around, easy to like, easy to be patient with kind of people, hard to be resentful with kind of people, people that are just so charming, or people whose relationship brings with it certain advantages as long as you are in their good favors. There are those kind of people that are, frankly, easy to be with. Or there's, there's an incentive to remain in their good graces. And then there are people that, well, let's just say that their spiritual gift seems to be that of James 1-2. Uh, and they take it upon themselves to uh, present various trials in your life so that you can just keep on counting it joy at all times. There are people who may make you frown simply by walking in the room. Paul is saying, with, with all kinds of people, put your bitterness away. Put it away. And it's with, maybe perhaps as I'm talking about this, I mean, when I wrote this, I, my mind went back. I had a coworker back in California, simply by hearing their voice. When they showed up for work, and I heard their voice, the color in the, in, in the sky just seemed to, everything turned gray. And I would just rather not have been around that person. As I, as I prepared this message, my mind went to that person. And I ask you, who's my, who, whose face is coming into your mind as I'm talking about this? It might be that the Spirit is speaking and nudging to you right now, putting someone's face in your mind as I'm talking about bitterness. I would, put, I would lay before you that that might be precisely the sphere or the relationship in which the Lord God himself is calling you to address the fact that you have bitterness in your, that you may have bitterness in your heart. And that may be the relationship where you need to put your bitterness 
away from you. Now, one step beyond bitterness is wrath and anger. And I'm, I'm putting these two together because they are virtually synonyms in, in many cases. In, in most of these lists of vices, they are, they are uh, laid side by side. But there are some differences to the words. Wrath uh, can mean more of an outward expression of anger, or a, it can talk about an outburst or an explosion that, that, that uh, it just needs to be vented, whether in word or action. Anger is just the more that um, what's going on on the inside is that seething, burning irritation that sets the groundwork for the explosion I just referred to. Like bitterness, Paul says all anger, all wrath must be put away from you. Sinful anger, seething anger, resentful anger needs to be put away from the Lord's people. And where it pops up, wrath and anger need to be turned away from and shut down and put away. Instead of, as, as, as we often do, as our, as our flesh uh, tells us to do, as our impulse inclines us to do, as our culture uh, uh, shapes us to do, rather than feed and fuel and exacerbate these qualities, we need to put them away. Your flesh feeds into these things. Your culture right now is, is, is either shaping you or wanting to shape your children to be very angry. Consider the words again of James 1, 19 and 20. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Why, James? Well, James is glad you asked that. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I hope, my, one of my aims is by the end of today, you will have that memorized. The anger of man does not achieve... It does not produce or bring about or lead to the righteousness of God. In our explosive anger, reasoned carefulness becomes reckless carelessness. When we, as Paul just warned us a few verses ago, we give the devil an opportunity. We give him a, 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 a place or a foothold in, in our lives, in our heart, the way we treat others and speak to them. And when that happens, we do far more damage than we anticipate. We can yell at someone we love. We can bring about severe consequences for unruly behavior to drive home a point, at all, while at the same point exacerbating the person whom we say we love. Exasperating. We can exasperate those whom we love. We can destroy trust with those whom we love. And we can be completely graceless, as well as being a pitiful example of what a Christian man or woman looks like. Let James' warning sink in. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Proverbs 16.32 says, he who is slow to anger is greater, is better than the mighty, 
And he who rules his spirit is greater than he who captures a city. Proverbs 29, verse 8. You know, you think back to what James said about the tongue setting the whole course of one's life on fire. Proverbs 29, 8 says, Scorners, scorners set a city aflame. A scorner is one who, who just speaks wrath. Speaks anger, speaks hatred. Scorners set a city aflame. But wise men turn away anger. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be one who responds to problems with wisdom and with right thinking? One who brings about good and wise and right solutions? Or do you want to multiply problems for yourself based on the foolish way you respond to things? Do you want to be wise? A wise, man, wise men turn away anger. Verse 11, same chapter, Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Again, do you want to be wise? Then put aside your wrath and your anger. Now, step further beyond this, down this, this cascade, this scale of, uh, of, of sinful anger, is clamor. After wrath and anger comes clamor. Now, wrath hinted at it, but clamor is definitely where we, where we begin to see the, this, this inner hostility of the heart manifest in outward behavior, right? What, what's in here is now coming out. You see what is inside by what's coming outside. Clamor has the idea of being so roused up and being so emotionally worked up that one just can't help but lash out. Clamor is when self-control goes out the window. It is to shout and rail and moan and complain and to accuse and to wail loudly and with great energy and with great effort and has no stopping point. One who clamors is one who can't easily, if at all, be de-escalated or, 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 or be made to calm down. In Exodus 12.30, the, uh, uh, the Greek uh, Septuagint uses this word to describe the, the great wailing the great lamenting of the Egyptian people as they awoke and found all their firstborn sons dead with that tenth and terrible plague. Mm-hmm. Now you could just imagine, you could Im- just imagine the the unrestrained and unconsolable shrill, the, the the hysteria even coming from all those families. Acts twenty three nine, Paul uh, Luke rather uses this. This word that that we have for clamor, uh, he uses it to describe the great uproar that occurred at Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin. If you don't know the scene, it's this: Paul Paul's on trial, and he's he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, which consisted of of, uh, of uh, Sadducees and Pharisees. And he said, "Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and a resurrection of the dead." And with those words. He divided the entire room into 
not one united faction against him, but now two disunited factions against one another uh, who were now uh, in, in this chaotic, heated whirlwind of arguing. They're, they are shouting, they are yelling, they are screaming, the spits flying, uh, finger, uh, fists are clenched and they're pounding on tables. That is clamor. Did, did I give you a vivid picture? That unrestrained fury that can't do anything but just explode is clamor. Maybe you've seen what was advertised as a what was supposed to be a civil exchange on a TV show, you can find um, you can find a plethora of these examples where it, where it was advertised that a civil a civil exchange, a, a civil discourse to be taken place. T uh, nowadays, it's typically between liberals and conservatives. Um, I found a number of these on the View or on the or on CNN when when any conservative was brought on, and quickly. Things just spiral out of control. And voices are raised. And interruptions abound. Accusations abound. You know what doesn't abound? Listening. Careful thinking before speaking. Explaining what someone meant by what they just said. Just volume and tension and anger, and chaos. That's clamor. And Paul, by the authority of Jesus Christ, says there's no place for clamor in the Christian's life. The Christian's tongue should not be a clamoring tongue. Let all clamor be put away from you. Next on the scale, slander. If I say if I, if I if I say what the Greek word is, I'm pretty sure you'll 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 hear it. Blasphemia. To blaspheme, to speak evil of somebody, to say bad things about somebody with, with the intent. It's usually under the guise of trying to trying to. Um, uh, stand for truth or to make a point, but the intent is to defame or to discredit. The, the intent is to murder one's reputation, dragging their name through the mud, then stomping on it, then finally, finally uh, hurling it into the trash. Now, the, <coughs> by this point, by, by the point that one uh, uh, is resorting to or acting out in slander, all that hostile enmity that, that, that we've built up to this point, all that rage that has been boiling up, it is, it is now boiling over into venomous accusation and destructive speech. Paul says, let all slander, all slander be put away from you. All of it. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and 
lastly, we have malice. Put away all malice. Now, what's malice? Malice, this is kind of a general summary word. It's a summary word for, for all kinds of evil. Um, it really encapsulates everything from the attitude uh, also to the outer expression. It, 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 it includes this uh, evil disposition against someone. It can definitely mean um, hoping that evil or harm befalls on someone, wishing that evil or harm falls on someone, wishing that something bad would happen to them, finding satisfaction if and when something bad happens to them, thinking about evil happening to them, wanting it to happen, desiring it to happen. And it can, it can go from there and it can go all the way to actually doing something about it so that evil does fall on them. Malice begins with the desire or the, or the evil thought and it goes all the way to the action. Uh, so as I say, it, it's a summary word. It can it encapsulates a lot. It is this retaliatory spirit that doesn't stay confined to the thought life if given the opportunity. It is a retaliatory, vindictive attitude that is all too willing to put its money where its mouth is. And Paul says, where these impulses, where these attributes, where they flare up, whether these are deep, settled patterns in your life, or if they are once in a blue moon, whoopsies. Paul says, let them be put away from you. Every one of them. And so, maybe you already have someone's face. Maybe you already have a particular relationship that's been brooding in your mind since this morning. If not, let me provide you a couple um, examples and to, to try to uh, help you along. Grudges against your parents. Maybe you feel your parents are, were or are too harsh on you. That they're unfair. That they make your life miserable. All they want to do is punish you. Paul says to you, whether you are an adult with even adulter parents or young children... Paul's telling you, put your bitterness against your parents away. Issues of conflict with your spouse. Things that your husband or your wife has done that has made you unhappy. Bitter. Things they have done to grieve you. Paul says, put those angry and bitter impulses away. Parents, the disappointment that your children either haven't or aren't shaping up as you anticipated or hoped they would be. Put that displeasure away. Employees, the boss who cheated you or overlooked you or played favorites. Or had different standards for different employees and was unfair. 
that business partner that swindled you, that guy or gal who broke your heart, the coworker who crossed you, someone who took advantage of your trust, someone who has been prejudiced against you, someone who has been unkind or unfair and has given you legitimate reason to be bitter, at least from a, from an, a, a worldly point of view. Paul says, put that bitterness away. Put that festering resentment that is conceived with bitterness, that is matured along into wrath and anger, and that is ultimately manifested in the outer expressions of slander and malice, Paul says that does not coincide, it does not fit with the pattern of the Christian. Put it away from you. In your, and wherever these attributes are to be found, whether they're in your life, whether they're in your, your, your thought life, whether they're in your speech, whether they're in your attitude. Because you can, you can express these qualities without opening your mouth. You can express these attitudes with body language, even if it's there. Put these things away. Again, James 1.20, the anger of man does not what? What? Thank you. Ten points to House Perry. <laughs> the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So put the anger of man away. Paul has been, made it very clear. This is not this is not hidden in coded language. Put these things away. And and being the helpful discipler and teacher, Paul not only tells us what hostile vices to turn from and to put away, he also tells us what hospitable virtues we need to turn to and put on. That, that leads us to our second point. Hospitable virtues to turn to. And if you are indeed a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you producing these qualities. And he, he, he is doing so in a capacity that you simply could not produce them without him. If you are a Christian, then you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, then you have these qualities. If you look up Galatians 5, I think 22 and following, and you read the fruit of the Spirit, those, that fruit of the Spirit is, is synonymous with these qualities that Paul is, uh, is telling us to put on here. It's actually the same qualities that Peter says uh, uh, to pursue in 1 Peter 3, I think, 8 and following. Paul also has another uh, almost identical list in Colossians 3, I think verse 14 or 15. You have the Spirit. You have these qualities. And the reason why I mention that is Paul is not telling you, as a Christian, you need to start doing these things. Rather, what he is saying 
is you need to continue to do these things. You need to foster these things in your life. You need to pursue these qualities more and more. And in your relationships where you have put aside being bitter and resentful and angry, where you have ceased to those things, you need to replace those things with more and more kindness and tenderheartedness and being gracious. Excel in those things. That's what Paul is saying here. And so that, that lead, let's go into uh, this list of hospitable virtues. He says first, be kind to one another. Be kind to one another. And I don't really have to go super deep with this word, right? We, we know what kindness is. It is, a, it is a good and favorable disposition. It is a, a desire to do good towards others, to be gracious and forbearing and patient. Kindness is to treat other people the way you would want them to treat you. Paul says to be kind to one another. Now this doesn't preclude or, or exclude us from being uh, unkind to unbelievers and those outside the church. We should be kind to all people. But when he says here, be kind to one another, there is a particular emphasis. It is particularly important that we be kind with one another within the church body. Every Christian ought to be kind, must be kind to every other member in the church body. And what that means is that there is not a single person who belongs to the Lord who likewise does not also belong to you. And that's an important thought, considering that we're having communion in a few minutes. Let me say that again. There is not one person who doesn't belong to the Lord who also does not belong to you as well. Someone belongs to your Lord, they belong to you. The church is not to be a place where there are cliques. And you know what cliques are. Cliques are where there's group there's multiple groups of people and they stay within their respective groups and they don't really intermingle. I hate cliques. So does the Lord. He hated them first. I hate them because he hates them. The church is not to be a place where there are cliques. The church is not to be a place where, where you have your ring of friends and the people that you like to associate and the people that you approve of. And then maybe there's this other group of people that you tolerate. And maybe you would you know be around them or at least fake a smile in the hallway. And then there's also a group of people that you just rather not associate with at all. There are not to be Grades of acceptance in the Lord's church. There are not to be cliques in the, in the Lord's church. Think about this. I'm kind of playing, uh, uh, this is kind of bleeding over into the third point while we're still in the second point, but I don't care. Think about God's kindness. As an incentive, as a motivation for you to be kind. Think about God's kindness. God is kind to just and the unjust alike, is he not? His rain falls on the just and the unjust. 
God is gracious to those who rebel against him every single day. Jesus was kind and he did a lot of good things for people who who he knew were going to turn on him. There were (coughs) countless thousands of people swarming around him for almost three years. You know how many people stayed with him to the end? Not many. And yet he was kind to them anyway. You read through the Gospels, and it seems day after day after day, he was exhausted from from an entire day of healing and teaching people and being accessible to them and touching them and coming down to their level and being with them. And being kind to them, knowing full well that most, if not all of them, were going to turn on him. I mean, he did that so often that he fell asleep on a boat in the middle of a storm. God's kindness is not limited to those who were worth or who were worthy of him liking them. God's kindness is not dependent on what he gets out of the relationship. God is kind because he is kind. And if God has that kind of kindness, kindness that gives, kindness that perseveres, kindness that endures, kindness that is relentless and intentional and unconditional, then so too should we. If I sound like I'm getting excited, it's because I know I need to be this way. I know I need to be more kind. So let me ask you, is there anyone in this room or within the visible body of Christ that you have been less than kind with? I mean, don't let it escape you that Paul has said, put all bitterness and anger, and wrath. And if, if all of the negative vices, if we're called to put all the negative vice away, we are called in the same way to put all of the positive virtues on. It is not enough that we are just kind of kind, or just sometimes kind of people. We need to put on all kindness. Is there anyone that you... Or I have been less than patient with. Less than forbearing with. Less than, less considerate with than we should have been. Less than gracious with. If so, then we need to respond to that. It's not enough that you are kind with just some people. Or that you are kind just some of the time. Paul says, be kind to one another, present tense, as in ongoing, again and again and again. Secondly, we're called to be tender-hearted. Here's my second, here's my first, my most favorite Greek word. Now, those of you who have been here for a while, can anyone remember what my favorite Greek word is? Nobody? Gungus move. What? Gungus move. No, that's my second. 
just said, I just said that was my second favorite word. Splonkna. Say it with me now. Splonkna. Just rolls right off the tongue. Uh, this, this word is actually usplonkna. You meaning the word uh, is the word for good. Splonkna is the word for the bowels, the innards, possibly the kidney or the liver. Not because I have a uh, fascination with, with the organs, but because they were the seat of the emotion for the Hebrew and the Greek mind. When you and I talk about uh, uh, loving someone with, with, with my heart, I put my heart in it. A Greek or a Hebrew would say, he, he played with his guts. That guy's got good guts. You know, you, you thought in, in, the, in the Greek... Uh, Greek way of thinking, you thought with your mind. You, you know, the, here's where your reason and your logic is. But your guts, your core, deep down here, is where you feel sympathy. This is where you feel pity. This is where you are moved to compassion. One of my favorite verses, Matthew 9.36, and it uses the same word, uh, the same root, Seeing the people, he was splognazamoi. Uh, I didn't say that right. He was moved with compassion for them, for they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Christ was moved to compassion. He was, if anyone was tenderhearted, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He was merciful. That's what tenderheartedness is. Being tenderhearted is to be kind, especially as a response to the needs and the unfortunate circumstances of others. It is as Harold Honer says, to be sympathetically oriented. I like that. Sympathetically oriented. And it's as far away from being as self-centered as you can be. It is to be entirely other, otherly oriented. Especially when someone needs you to be there for them. And one who is tender-hearted can't help but just jump at the opportunity to help and to care for someone who is in need. Paul says, be tender-hearted to one another. Lastly, now, your, your, your translation is going to say forgiving each other. Um, I know that's what the NASB said. I don't know what you're thinking. You went here and you went to the ESV. You know what the ESV says? Forgiving each other. So the ESV is in the same camp. But the word is actually means to, uh, to, to be gracious. It, I don't know why. I don't know why they chose the word, uh, they chose to render this forgiving each other. This word certainly includes, or within its range, it includes this idea of being forgiving. But I want you to, I just want you to see that th this word goes beyond forgiving. It, by all means, be forgiving. Be very forgiving. Excel in forgiveness. Be abundant in your forgiveness. But it goes beyond forgiveness. <laughs> Grace goes on to be patient. 
Grace goes on to be kind and forbearing and compassionate. Grace goes on to be considerate and loving and giving. Grace blesses. Grace builds up. Grace edifies. Grace serves. Grace imparts joy. And it does so sacrificially. Grace gives what is undeserved. And if you don't get this part, then you don't get grace. Grace gives freely. You, I suppose someone could be coerced into, into forgiving someone. Who, who can't remember as a child being told by mom and dad, now I want you to forgive so-and-so. But you can't be coerced to give grace. If grace doesn't come freely, then it's not grace. Paul says to be gracious, as I choose to translate it, be gracious to each other. And I know what you're thinking, Aaron, if you knew what so-and-so did to me, if you knew what they did, if you knew how they wronged me, how much money they took from me, how much they swindled me, if you knew what they did to stab me in the back, you wouldn't be telling me that I have to be kind and tender-hearted and gracious and forgiving to someone like that. He doesn't deserve it. Of course he doesn't. Of, of course he doesn't, but here's the catch, and, and here's the tra- here we, we, we shift into the third point. You didn't deserve the grace that God graced you with. And if you want to keep this in terms of forgiveness, as your translation probably has, fine. You didn't deserve to be forgiven when God forgave you. So let's now look at the pattern to remember. Let me just read verse 32 in its entirety. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other or showing grace to each other. Here we are. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Paul is drawing your mind, drawing your attention to God's pattern. Look at how God treated you. Here is the key to making the the successful transition from being a self-centered, grumpy, old miser festering in bitterness to being a joyous, gracious, forgiving, kind, and tender-hearted person. You settle yourself in the knowledge and in the understanding and in the remembrance of the grace that God has shown you. Your sins have been forgiven. And if God was willing to set aside his righteous wrath against you for a lifetime of sin against him, which which would include every single sinful act, every single sinful thought, and every single sinful impulse. Do you realize that we sin even when we don't realize we sin? We sin by doing things we ought not to do. We sin by not doing what we ought to do. 
we sin by falling short, in addition to transgressing. There is a whole lifetime of sin that God has put aside. Sin, uh, 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 wrath, and judgment that was rightfully coming for you, he put that aside and he graced you with forgiveness that you certainly didn't deserve. And this, beloved, this is why Paul made such a big stink and why I tried to make a big stink in the beginning of this chapter about humility because if you are not humble and if you are proud, then you won't think that you have been forgiven of that much. You won't see all that you need to be forgiven of. And if you are, if you haven't been forgiven of much, you are going to be more concerned about what you think you have coming towards you in terms of what someone owes you. If your mind is not settled in the fact that God has forgiven you much, you are going to, you're going to be more thinking about what so-and-so owes you. And the wrong, rather, let me rephrase that. If you are not thinking and reflecting on the fact that you have, have, have had wrongs committed against God, and that He has dealt with that graciously, where your mind is going to be is on the wrongs that, have, that you perceive have been committed against you. That will be your focus. And if God set aside what was rightfully coming for you, and if he graced you with forgiveness, and if he graced you with so much more, so much more that we could never deserve, let me ask you this. By what right, by what grounds do we keep holding on to our resentment against someone who has wronged us with a wrong that is so much smaller than the wrong with, with, with which we have wronged God? Is this word salad coming out or am I making sense? Let me try to simplify this. God has done the far greater thing in forgiving our guilt. And in reconciling us and gracing us with much more than we can imagine. Therefore, it is entirely reasonable It is entirely reasonable that we who have been forgiven and graced should let go of the resentment that all too often dominates the lives of people today. And this is, this is the takeaway. This is the takeaway of the parable of the two tenants in Matthew 18. That it is, it is so unthinkable that one who was shown such forgiveness, one who had such an immeasurable debt, a great debt, uh, a, a, a nearly incalculable debt. I know it. I know Matthew tells you, uh, gives you a number. The point is that the debt was supposed to be so massive that he would never practically be able to pay it. There, it is unthinkable that one who had such a debt was shown such immeasurable mercy and grace, only then to turn around and not show mercy and grace to one who owed him a much smaller debt. We don't show grace. We don't give forgiveness because anybody deserves it. We show it because God was gracious to us 
in Jesus Christ. That's why we're tender-hearted. Because God was tender-hearted to us. I mean, we, we put away wrath and slander and anger because God put away His anger, His righteous anger that He had towards us. He put that away and He was kind to us. And He was tender-hearted to us. And He was gracious to us. Therefore, why shouldn't we be like our God and be kind and tender-hearted and gracious to others? Especially those of the household of faith. Now, talking about that grace would be a, would, would be a good transition point for us going into communion. Because communion is a time... I mean, we should be gospel-reflective on a weekly basis, right? Thinking, reflecting on the fact that Christ Jesus interceded for sinners like us, that shouldn't be a once-a-month reflection. But this is a time where we especially devote ourselves to thinking about this. The law of God condemns us. What was, what was implied, I think, in the text that we looked at today is that there are times where we are, where we are wrong. We live in a sinful world. Not only do we sin and we bring up woes upon ourselves, but there are times where people legitimately wrong us and we are grieved. We are given, we have grounds to be angry and bitter and resentful from a human point of view. But the truth is, if we look at ourselves objectively, we, can di we have dished it out just as much as we've received it. We are not good people. The law of God condemns us. We don't love God as we ought to. We don't love our fellow man as we ought to. And objectively speaking, we are not innocent victims. We aren't the innocent victims that psychology claims we are. In truth, we are the culprits in need of saving. And here's where the good news of the gospel comes in, is that Christ Jesus has appeared to save sinners exactly like us. And that's very good. Jesus Christ has appeared in the flesh to take away our sin and in this great and wonderful exchange, all of, all of the sinner's law-breakingness, grammatically that doesn't work, but I'm going to make it work because I'm in the pulpit. All of the sinner's law-breakingness, Christ Jesus took upon himself. And all of his law-keepingness, he gives, he, uh, he, uh, he credits, he imparts. To those who have faith in him. So that as uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We're not, I'm not righteous enough of myself. And neither is anyone here. 
But there is one who is completely and perfectly righteous, Jesus Christ. And if I am in him, and if you are in him, when God looks at you, and when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin or your sin. He sees his son's perfection. My friends, that is such good news for sinners like you and me. So this is a time where we especially think about this. We are brought near to God because of Jesus, and we are brought near to each other as well. And Paul gives a warning in 1 Corinthians 11 that if you, uh, uh, he says if you don't uh, judge the body rightly, and I, we don't know, if, is, he, is he talking about the body of Jesus that was given over, or the body of Christ? I like to think that he's talking about both. Both are things that we should consider very soberly as we approach this table. And so while the elements are being distributed, I would ask you to use this time in prayer and silent reflection. Determine whether or not it's appropriate for you to take the elements. And there's no shame in letting them pass. And to prepare your heart for communion.
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, 23, that the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, what a, again, uh, an amazing and marvelous thing that you have left your throne. You left perfect glory. You came down. You put on the slave of an uh, apron of a slave. You who deserved to be served by all of creation came not to be served but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. What a marvelous demonstration of kindness and tenderheartedness and grace. Lord, help us to be like you. Help us to excel and to pursue these qualities and to treat each other as you have treated us. Amen. Well, after we come to a close today, would you stand with us for one last song of worship? Sing about the deep, deep love.